can you make sure that you're in first in first Thessalonians 4, not first Corinthians 4 or Ezekiel 4 like I was. Here we go. And we will continue our series. <clears throat> so first Thessalonians is written in about 51 AD and the church was planted in 50 AD, probably about six months prior. So this is a young church, a very young church. They've already got elders and they've got some some theological problems, like you can reason that that's pretty reasonable that they would. They've got lots of things to uh, lots of things going well. They need some things in corrected. Uh, Paul has has already written in the prior chapters commending them for what has been going tremendously. He, he says you have. Uh, in the church, there is this amazing repentance that has occurred. All these dozens of lives who were living for themselves, living in sin, and many of them under either apostate Judaism, right, right, unsaved Jews who were rejecting Christ, abusing the church, or they were from pagan Thessalonian Greek uh, 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 idolatrous backgrounds. And, and so they've all been saved, turned from sin and their and the, the humanized worship of God and, and have come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And that repentance looked like them also declaring the word of God through evangelism. Uh, Paul says back in chapter one that, that the word of God has sounded out from them all throughout Macedonia. And if we go and look at the map, Macedonia is about the land size in, in its in what it was back in the ancient days, about the same size as the state of Victoria. So you've got one local body without the internet, without a megaphone, without uh, 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 social media or, or even the printing press, and they were reaching this enormous area with the gospel. And then even wider spread had been the reputation of this church. So Paul's over in Corinth, even further away, outside of Macedonia, and he's saying, people here are telling me about the Thessalonian church that I planted. This is great and glory to God. And so we've been seeing him commend them on their repentance, their work of faith, their, their, their steadfast hope and all, and all of this. But now we come to chapter 4 and he turns a little bit from just commendation and, and reviewing backwards and he starts actually giving them corrections and commandments. We saw last week as we started that he, he gives it sort of in this, uh, <clears throat> let, let me just check my notes here. I don't want to go, go, go too far on, but, but he, he commanded them back in verse one and two of chapter four. He commanded them with this military urgency and this, this family honor. Right? Right? So he's talking to them. Uh, he's giving them commands in a old ancient Roman military style. And yet he's calling them brothers and he's telling them to pursue their father. So as we think about our lives, and if, if you call yourself a Christian, the question has to be asked, are you living a distinctly Christian life? And if you are not, then there is no right in Paul's mindset, there's no right to call yourself a, a Christian. He would say to those following him, he says, why do you call me Lord? Why waste the breath to call me Lord if you're not living the way that I command you to live? Lord means master, means the one I obey. If he has purchased your life from death, you must be living for him in holiness. And so Paul reminded them of that, especially, right? And this is what he did. He, he commended them and then he commanded them. This is a pattern of Paul's. He commended them on their, on their pleasing God and how they're going, but then he commanded them specifically to pursue sanctification all the more in sexual purity. 
that, that, that Christians must have distinct lives that, that are not living the same sexual immorality as the world. We, we don't live with our partners before we're married. We, we don't go and engage in immorality, but pursue God, trust Him for help, and trust Him for the forgiveness of all that we have wronged in, in that way. Uh, and yet, so, so he commanded that. And this week, as we pick up from verse 9 through to verse 12, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to commend them on how they've been going in one area and then command them in another area. This is a common Pauline uh, tactic. He commends them, encourages them, and then gives them commandments. And so read with me. I'm going to read verse 9 through to verse 12. And if you have a paper Bible, right, one of these old old style ones. You can also keep your finger a cup, two pages or so over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where the same theme is picked up and where we will also be spending some of our time tonight. So I'm going to read this amazing word of the Lord, the inspired inerrant scripture that he's given to us. Verse 9. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, uh, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. May God bless us today as we, as we read and, and hear the preaching of this inerrant, inspired word. So I want to get hit on three main uh, topics tonight, and it's going to be that he commends that they love, right? He's commending the love that they have. That's good. But then he comes and commands that they labor. In other words, that they get a job. Good advice. We'll see. And then thirdly, we're going to see that he uh, condemns their laziness. He commends their love, commands their labor, and condemns their laziness. So that let us re, uh, just go back to verse 9 and 10, and we will see how this progresses. Verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, classic pastor. Do you see what he just did? He goes, you don't need anyone to write to you about love, but, but give me a bit. I will. I'll, I'll write to you anyway. He's like, he's a classic dad. He'll say to you right before you go out with all your friends, he goes, now I trust you and I don't need to tell you how to behave. But over the next 10 minutes, I will do just that, right? I trust you, but let me me add. And and this is because, or it's like, it gives me, it's an excuse for me as a pastor. Tom, you've said this already. You know, we know this. Yeah, well, Paul did it. I can do it. Uh, So, but what what we see is that this is a Christian, this is common in our scriptures. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, He says, I intend always to stir you up by way of reminder, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. This is is classic Christianity. You know that we are not, us Christians, we are not just people who need new teaching and new revelation. We also just need to be reminded over and over again of the things we've heard over and over again, but fail to live up to. This is encouraging. You you don't always need new teaching. You need reminding, or the pictures can be. You don't always need something, but as Peter says, you need stirring up. And maybe you're not a Christian who thinks you can teach a whole lot to your brothers and sisters, and you can add some theological understanding. 
understanding to how they view scripture. Friends, wherever you are, if you are in Christ, you are commanded to and encouraged to stir one another up. You may pour nothing new in, but stir them up to good works and to love, we're told. So here's what Paul does. He doesn't command something new, but reminds them what they already know. And he says here that they themselves have been taught by God to love. This is that what he means is the Holy Spirit has come to you. I know this. The Holy Spirit has come to you and has been teaching in your hearts uh, through the preaching of your elders that you would love one another well. He sees that uh, as already evident. um, And so you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So, so here's what their love is looking for. Their love is within the church. You go to that church, you can sense, you feel that there is a brotherly, sisterly love going on. But more, Paul says that, that their love is as widespread as their gospel witness. That is a good example for a church. The way we would preach Christ, let us also be known to be loving, unified people. And so he says, all throughout Macedonia, again, the size of the state of Victoria, that they all feel and experience your love. And what this is probably referring to in practical terms, that they're not just writing letters of love to one another, what it probably means is that the Macedonian, Thessalonian church, sorry, the Thessalonian church is raising funds, supporting people, and giving uh, funds to other churches. It was during this period that there was a, a large famine that came through the area. And so it's probable that what Paul is referring to is that these Thessalonians are giving generously, sacrificially to all the brothers and sisters as far as they can reach. That is commendable. And so he does. But I want to ask you, uh, do, do you, do you feel this in what Paul is encouraging? Have you, what Paul is trying to avoid them doing is that old picture of resting on your oars. Uh, You get enough momentum up and then you sort of just rest in what you're doing. Uh, Paul doesn't want them to do this with love. I don't know if you've ever felt this in your local church, never have, but I hear that that loving each other is kind of hard. It doesn't come naturally to sinners like you and me who have so much not in common, who get on each other's nerves so much. We have differences, different likes and dislikes, and, and, and the very thing that I hate, she loves, and the very thing that I'm trying to not do, she, oh man, we get on each other's nerves. And so Paul is saying, you can never just trust the momentum of your affection for each other or the atmosphere of a church and, and just assume it'll keep on going safely and, and we can just trust that to happen. We're sinners. We get on each other's nerves. We sin against each other. We need to all the more, more so, as as Paul says, continue in our labor to love one another. And the type of love, he says. He says the Greek, this is Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia is is that Greek word that refers to the brotherly or family love. Love of the brethren. It was usually used in terms of the love between family. And says what is exclusively used for family love, I apply to the love of the church, that we are not related by our own blood, but we are related by the blood of Christ. And so I want to ask you, are you known for love? Your affectionate unity, that's really the idea going on, that you guys are one, that we are, that we are loving each other in this way, seeing each other as equals and treating each other as such. And if you are, if you feel that that is something the Lord is blessing you with, never rest 
in what you are, but pursue all the more that the Spirit would lead you into greater and greater acts and service of love to each other. So he commends them on their love. But they're not doing well in other areas. Keep on, keep on reading with me. <clears throat> this next section we see that he commands their labor. So he says here, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. That's, that, that's their love. And to a, that you would aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, it's possible to be sanctified in different amounts in different areas. Okay, you're very generous, you're very sacrificial in helping other Christians, but you're super proud and you're super self-righteous. And so you have different different areas that you need to be sanctified in. Or that you're a great evangelist, but you're actually quite lazy at home, right? It's possible. Don't be discouraged, but be encouraged here. You can be doing well in something. And when the Lord comes and brings rebuke or consciousness of your sin, conviction of that, don't think that he's telling you, you are just the worst you could be. But Hear the commendation of whatever the Lord would speak over you, and also the command. The command, at least in this church, what was going on is that while there was a lot of love and probably a lot of generosity, and you can see what's happening here, a lot of support and financial giving of each other to support those in need, what that fostered is some laziness among some people. But man, I just love going to church with, with these rich folk because they just love giving. They love giving. I love receiving. I hate working. Everybody's happy. It's great. And so I, I can just receive the, the alms, as it used to be called, or the support of the church, and, and I can keep on loving Jesus and taking the money of my brothers and sisters. Paul is going to say that that is not how Christians live. That is not what love should produce in a church. <clears throat> so... He's talking here about unemployment. He means secular employment, some would call it, or just having a job where you receive your own income. Let's just be really clear about that. Now, he's not talking about those who are able to work for some physical disability or maternity leave or, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic that shuts down a whole bunch of businesses. He's not talking about the inability to work, but he's addressing those who could Choose not to, because the church is so generous. So it's the, in, the unwillingness to work that he's going to speak to here and in no uncertain terms. What you see, if you can look in verse 11, <clears throat> he tells them here to aspire to live quietly. In the Greek, it's a funny use of terms. It's like he's saying, your ambition should be to have less ambition. Aspire with all that you can to live quietly, okay? Well, what it seems to be going on here is that these people, not busy at work, are proud in, in their own life. They're quite outspoken about all the things that they're achieving. They're very proud people. And, as he goes on, meddling in other people's business. He says, mind your own affairs. And what is the solution? Work with your hands as we instructed you. He's telling them, get into the workforce. There is no, no commentary on this. You can read that, that, that concludes in any different way. Paul was telling them, work with your hands. It was actually quite an insulting phrase for the Greeks. It's sort of telling them to, in their culture, go and get the, to work with 
like manual labor they thought was the the, the job of the slaves, the, the job of the, the unworthy. I wouldn't work with my hands. And he's telling them, whatever you do, thinking of yourself so highly, get out of everybody else's business, get busy with your hands. There's something about the workforce that humbles you and keeps you out of trouble in general. There's something about rocking up to work and never getting paid as much as you feel like you're worthy, right? As an apprentice coming in on those seven big bucks an hour or whatever it is, okay, you're on the, the checkout ticket at Woolworths and you're not making what your parents make and it all feels like There's something about working with your hands that you throw all of your effort and time into something and, and whatever number comes back, it's often quite humbling. But also when you've got 40 plus hours a week that's, that's in a, 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 the work of a business, there's a lot less time to get involved in other people's business. There's a lot less time to spend in sin and frivolity. Spurgeon, he used to say of, of men who refuse to work, he says, idle hands and idleness means slothful laziness. Idleness, right? You, you chuck your car in idle and it just uh, chugs along and stick, uh, the, the engine goes, but it stays in one place. It's unproductivity. Spurgeon said that idle hands tempt the devil to tempt him. When our hands are doing nothing, the devil loves to come and find someone to do. He'll, he'll lead them into sin. He'll lead them into other people's business and to do all sorts of mischief because his hands aren't doing what men and women were created to do. What Work six days, rest one. This is a, this is a human creation pattern. So, so he goes on. Now, I want to say that in, 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 in this situation, we could ask, they're being lazy, not working, not getting a job. What's the cause of this? Like, what's the mindset? And we addressed already that part of it could have been because to the Greeks, they believed that to labor with your hand was a demeaning job. But it also could have been, as we see next week, they had unbiblical views about the coming of Jesus Christ. They believed, first of all, it was, it was a good thing. We'll, we'll look at this next week. But, but they believed Jesus could come at any single point. And, and he could come in the next few minutes. <clears throat> but what that, that view was doing was, was a, they were applying it to their lives in unsound ways. So some of them were saying, well, if Jesus comes back tomorrow, there's no need to go and drop in a resume down at the, the local warehouse because I'll be up in heaven tomorrow. If Jesus is coming back at any point, I should just be devoted to him and, and not doing this, uh, doing this manual work. So he addresses that next week. But also what, what was going on, very likely as we see as we go to 2 Thessalonians, is that people were having this, high, I know you know these Christians, you, you've met these people, these hyper-spiritual, angelic, almost Gnostic views of themselves, that they're just so elated and, and caught up in the work of Jesus and loving him and, and serving the church, that they don't need to work. You know, work is for those worldly Christians who are storing up their wealth on earth. But for me, man, I just love and serve Jesus and I don't need to get a job. And so Paul will address each of these uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the coming letter in 2 Thessalonians. But his... His, uh, his solution here is just so simple. It makes it really easy as a pastor. He says, verse 11, shut up, mind your own business, get a job. Aspire to just live quietly, mind your own business, right? Mind your own affairs and work with your hands. Shut up, 
Get out of other people's business and get a job. That is the solution of just so much of those mindsets. The Greek mindset, the hyper-spiritual mindset, the, the early Jesus coming back mindset. He, he, that, 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 is, that is his advice. I just can't add to that. I like it. I like Paul's advice. But, but what we see is, is that these people who are against hard work, well, they're not against hard work, you know, for, for Jesus' sake, for being spiritual. They're just against their hard work. Because you should go, money's got to come from somewhere. You should go to work. You, you should devote 40 hours a week in labor, but I should get some of your money. Like they're not against people working in the secular, you know, Satan-controlled, outside-the-church world. They're not actually against that. They're lying. They're okay for you to do it as long as they can get your free money. Now, now we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, there are exceptions for who can receive support from the church. But again, Paul is commanding, and this is the Christian uh, norm, to which there will only be very few exceptions. If you're a Christian, God take responsibility for your own support. If you are able to work, it's not an ungodly thing to go and work in a non-Christian business. All of the world belongs to the Lord, and what he brings to you through income is a good and godly gift from above. So get a job, mind your own business, and serve the Lord in that way. And then be generous so that you can support those who need it. But now we're going to turn to 2 Thessalonians because Paul was soft in 1 Thessalonians. He commanded things and, and he, you know, he, he gave some, uh, some ideas or he urged them. But 2 Thessalonians, he picks things up. Now, while you're turning there, let me just uh, finish up from 1 Thessalonians. Verse 12, he says, so you should shush, mind your own business, get a job so that you may walk properly before outsiders and depend on no one. Dependence on the church or dependence on our brothers and sisters is, as we've said, okay in certain extreme emergency circumstances. It's kind of like, I remember <laughs> when I was in uh, a family holiday, when I was in high school, we were in the New York subway. And there was a, re you know, it's New York, there's lots of people, really big lines waiting to punch your ticket and get out of the subway. And, but there's a second door that you can go through. You just pass the entire line. But over that gate says, emergency only, alarm will sound fine for use. Everyone knows that door is there, but it's only for emergencies. It costs a lot when you run through there, fire department is called and, and all, of, all of that. So everyone else is lining up and going through this and our family's in line. And my mum, apparently America, writes in different English to Australians and she just sees a gate Kids, come on, another gate. Walks on with her head down, pushes this door open, looks back at us. We're going, no. And it, yes, the door is there. Yes, technically, you can walk through it whenever you want. But that's not the point the, for emergencies. And that's kind of how some people view the support of the church. Yes, it's there. Of course, brothers and sisters, if, if you're in deep need, they will fork out and help you if at all it is wise to do so. But, but friends, we don't, we don't like depending on other people when we cannot. Didn't the Lord say it's more blessed to give than receive? And all those hyper-spiritual said, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to give you the greater blessing. You should give. That you be more blessed than me and I'll just receive. Humble old me, I'll let you do the giving. No, no, Jesus calls all of us to depend on no one. And secondly, so that we can be an example, as he says, walk properly before outsiders. We, we want to give good reputation for Jesus and the church. 
And the reputation that Paul wants people to have as they look at the church are not these hyper-spiritual people who have no idea what the real life is like, not people who carry around this idea of a gospel that, that saves you from real life. And so, you know, your working bloke comes on in, your hardworking mother comes on in and sees these Christians with this view. It's, it, you know, the, the work is, is sort of semi-sinful and for the losers, the plebs of society. And there's a disconnect in our witness. We want to give them the truth in our life that we are, you and me, in the church, still real people in this fallen world, working and laboring. And we want to give them an example also. If you become a Christian, this is what you can expect. You'll be expected to be a hardworking bloke, not an effeminate sitting around taking money for the church for free, but hardworking and, and both men and women give off this example. So that's what Paul says. But you're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 now. And here we turn to realize some, uh, uh, some repeat, some repetition of Paul's exhortations. What failed to come across with urging and encouragement, Paul gets a, with Thessalonians, he's got only a few months difference. He sends the first letter, it's gone. He hears back some misunderstandings of what he said the first time and some, some commands that he gave that were not listened to. He gives it in stronger, firmer, clearer words. Before we go here, I, I want to clear up. Sometimes the, 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 the unwillingness to work. I don't just want to bash the, the, those among us who are unwilling to work and, and don't like going to have a job in God's pattern, right? You, you want to escape that? Let me, let me tell you, you've got to misconceive work. Work is not a result of the fall that we do because we're sinners. Hard work is a part of the image of God that is placed on you. God worked in order to create the world, right? He didn't break a sweat. We know that. But God says that his pattern of creation was that we would live after it, that he created for six days and then rested on the seventh so that we would have a pattern of working and resting. Genesis 2 verse 15 is when Adam is commanded to work and keep the garden. That's before sin comes into the world. Before sin comes, he's working. After sin comes, God says that now your work will be hardened. It'll be more difficult to get food. It'll be by the sweat of your brow that you work and eat bread. Yes, true. Work is hardened now, but it was around before the fall. Let me also tell you, don't think that heaven is going to be work-free. In the parables of Luke and Matthew's gospel, when Jesus gives the, the parables of the talents, when he, when he gives some money to some people and then leaves, comes back and blesses those who is able to productively bring profit, he says that their reward is to be set in heaven to do more work, that those who are faithful on earth to work hard with what you had will be given great work and authority and labor in heaven to do. So don't think Christianity is some escape of work. You have a misconception. It is God's good pattern for us to be redeemed in our work, that, that all of your work uh, is not wasted. It's done in the Lord, but it is, it is commanded. It is, it is not a, a necessary evil. It is a glorious God-like thing to go break a sweat for the good of other people. So let's, let's go in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm just going to walk through this from verse 6 to 12 at uh, one verse at a time kind of pace. <clears throat> Hear it now. So verse 6, 
He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is authoritative. This is, again, military-styled commandments. We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, he's still talking to Christians. He's not assuming these, these people who fail to work are now outside of the faith and treat them as apostates. He's saying they are brothers, but here's some military-style discipline coming into their lives. He says that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. In other words, he's not saying kick them out of church. He's saying stop giving them your money. They come to your meals. Don't feed them. They come to church and ask. Don't support them. Don't, don't, don't let them do that. Keep away from them. In fact, what is going on in this language is that he's saying don't have any contact with them that is not the regular meeting of the church. Don't be their buddies. They're in sin. And he keeps going. He says, <clears throat> verse 7, For you yourselves, right, you Thessalonian, Thessalonian church, you know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. He's saying this is an example, not just that I hope you would follow in. He said, when we were among you, we lived as you ought to follow. Work your own job like Paul did. He remember he went there, he worked as a tent maker, stitching leather with his hands in order to make his own buck and not rely on the new Christians and to give them an example to do so. He even says, but whenever we came and, and ate other people's breads, we paid for it. Now, of course, he would have accepted generous gifts of, of meals and hospitality, but he never depended on anybody. He never needed anybody because while he was working full-time for the church to see it grow, he was also working full-time as a tent maker so that he could pay his rent at Jason's house and support the church himself. So Paul, the, the man of man's, writes to this church reminding them, I gave you such a better example. Where are you getting this from? You think you're more godly than me? You think you're more godly than Jesus, the apprentice carpenter who swung a hammer for a living? Where do you get off? You've got an example from me. Let's get to it. But he goes on and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't calm down. He says, verse 9, it was not because we did not have the right to give you an examples to imitate, right? You know, as, as we spoke before, the Bible teaches that those who labor in the word for the church are to be supported by the church. In the first century, this meant that the apostles of Jesus Christ had a right. As they wrote scripture, planted churches, established the foundation layer of the church of Jesus, what their right included was to come and be supported from anyone they served that they would come to a community and, and be able to demand that that church pays for them so that they can spend all their time in the Word and in prayer, teaching and equipping the people. Also, we, we see in 1 Timothy 5 and, and, uh, and uh, it, through, through the words of Christ, we see that those who labor in the Word 
So elders and pastors, therefore, those who put that, so that they can put their time into preparing sermons, discipling, mentoring, counseling, and all the rest, so they can do that, the church has a duty to support them. And so Paul is referring here to his own right. As an apostle, you, it was not because I didn't have the right to demand money, but so that I could love you well and give you this example to imitate. And he keeps on going. Right? It's, it's not for the lazy people who don't want to work. It's for the hard workers who are employed by the church. Verse 10. I love this saying. Love this saying. For even when we were with you. Right? He's saying, this isn't, I'm not reminding you this for the first time. I told you this when we were among you. He says, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not It's a very short road to correcting the process. Bloke rocks up to church for support. He has no food at home. His kids are starving. He needs your money. And why are they hungry? Because he just doesn't want to go to work. Two options. When you withdraw your support, don't spend time with him and tell him the apostolic command. You know what Paul knows is going to happen in the Thessalonian church? He will die. There's their problem gone or he will get a job. If this is a necessary mercy ministry where he couldn't work, of course they would support him, but it's not. As soon as he gets hungry enough and realizes the church is discerning and solid on this stance from the apostle, he'll walk away, he'll man up, hopefully shut up, mind his own business, get a job. That's the apostolic command. And that's what Paul says. It's, it's harsh, but, but look at what he says now. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. There's, there's a play on word here from Paul. Right? He's hearing the rep- This is not just a private matter between brothers. He has heard that the Thessalonian church's reputation is being ruined. What is so good what they've worked so hard to proclaim Christ through their life, it's being ruined by the lazy few. So Paul says, those who are, who are idle, that they are busy bodies involved in other people's business instead of busy at work. It's kind of a play on words like yeah, the, the, the office clown come in and go, hard at work or hardly working, right? Hilarious. We've never heard that before. Well, well this is the sort of similar Pauline apostolic pun. Don't be busy bodies. Be busy at work. And there is a great difference between busy and productive. God calls us to be productive, not just busy. Don't, you know, everyone who's unemployed still says, oh, I'm just so busy, so much to do. Oh, I don't know if I've got time for a job. Well, make time. Make time, he says. Get a job, mind your business, and support others. But he keeps on going. He says, now, such persons, these lazy, these idle brothers, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, brotherly family, military terms, encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Your version might said to eat their own bread. Very, very clear. Let's keep going. Verse 13, he now says to all the brothers who are doing good, those among you who have a job, who are working hard, who are able to work and are doing so, providing for yourself, And maybe you've started to get annoyed by those lazy few who are draining the church's resources. He says, to you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. What a great encouragement. 
Don't let the leaven of a few, the laziness of a few, ruin your passion and zeal to do what the Lord has commanded. Follow in it, walk after it, continue, persevere. And verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of, take note of that person, right? write their name down and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. That's harsh. That's really mean, Paul. You want him to feel ashamed? Yes, Paul doesn't, and, and neither should Christian leaders. They, they don't get on a, on a tirade and make people feel guilty for their sins that have been forgiven in Christ. But these men, and, and probably the, the majority of them were men, they were treating their brothers and sisters shamefully. It was their sin that was disgusting and abusive. And in fact, it's really theft. They, they could be working, they're stealing other people's money. They're living at home for, for free, doing nothing and, and draining the church's support. Paul says, that's a shameful act. Stop feeling sorry for them. Treat them as shamefully as they are treating you in the Lord. We get here a lot of, a lot of themes that are similar to what we read in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6 verses 6 to 11, speaks about this. Let me, let me read it to you. Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11, reads like this. <clears throat> Go to the ant, O sluggard. Have you ever been in so much laziness that Paul says that tiny little bug on the ground, that's your example. Just try and live after that, right? Get that, look up to the ant. How's that? Well, Paul didn't say it, sorry. The Lord said it. Uh, So anyway, he starts out, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief, officer, or ruler, without any boss threatening that they'll lose their overtime, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. So how long will you lie there, O sluggard? How many times will you hit the snooze button and make excuses to stay in bed? How long, when will you arise from your sleep? And this is what the fool says. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And lack will come upon you like an armed man. In other words... Poverty will overtake you like a bloke with a bat if you don't work hard. It's true that laziness asks God, demands that God teach you lessons in harsher ways than those who are disciplined. Uh, What what the hardworking will hear as, as continue on in your hard work or poverty will come. That's true. I live it. I see that. I'll continue. But the lazy who have no working momentum. They need poverty to come with a baton and treat them harshly to learn the lesson. And so Paul is saying, let my words beat you like a bat. Let the church treat you shamefully like a dude with a bat so that poverty doesn't have to come and leave your family unfed. So that poverty doesn't come and do the harsher work. Now, verse 15, back in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse Uh, 15 says this, to those who are doing well, as far as you treat these people, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I think that's, that's uh, relieving news to those who are, who are in the, in the faith. 
You are not being regarded as those who have ruined the covenant of grace. You're on the outside. You're being told that you should be treated like a brother and encouraged to come back. Now, Now, there is that encouragement. But for me, I would much rather be treated as a guest and an outsider than like a brother sometimes. When my dad is saying, when I, was a, when I was younger, you guys need to get whipped into shape, and he said to my older brother, he's your brother, sort him out. In those moments, I would much rather be treated like a guest. But rules don't get bent for the guest. The dad doesn't turn his blind eye as the older brother gets out some weaponry on the guest. But, but when it's the brother, brothers get treated harsher. Rules get bent for brothers, okay? There are more bruises given to brothers than to guests. So there's a double-sided coin here that Paul is saying, treat them like brothers. And everyone with an older brother gulped and went and got a job. And all those in the faith said, you bet, we will treat them like brothers. Consider them in Christ, but treat them harshly as those we love. And we want to see them repent rather than be slothful and be rebuked and punished by the Lord. And here is the promise. We love you. After every bruising from an older brother comes the I love you. And it's true. Jesus will speak to us in Revelation chapter 3. He said to to that church, verse 19, Revelation chapter 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. What is the church's response? So be zealous and repent. Friends, you're not called, don't don't hear this today, you're not called to work in your obedience to the Bible or in the secular, in in your job, you are not called to work for salvation. It is not because your work impresses God and earns his grace. It's also not because God needs your money or the church requires your cash. That's not why. God is calling you today to come back to his way of life by repentance. Your laziness, as in the the seed of laziness is in every single one of us. It is sin. It is not just a funny little personality trait. You know, I did the personality test and my my four letters were L-A-Z-Y. And so I I I I don't have the personality type to work hard. No, God calls it sin. We must call it the same here at church. It is sin that needs to be repented of and therefore forgiven in Jesus Christ. Your laziness, that sin, that offense against God that says you're better than his own son who worked, that needs to be erased, not by your own paycheck. It needs to be erased by the blood of Christ, like all of our sins. It is a sin that can damn if unrepented of, but it is a sin that Jesus had paid for. When Jesus returns, let me ask you this. When Jesus returns, will he find you repentant of your sin? Will he find you as one committed to his ways because of the salvation brought through Christ? Will he find you naming God, but all on your own terms, making excuses for, as we saw in the prior week, sexual immorality, or this week, laziness and idleness, defining all the Christian life in our own way? Will God find that? That is not repentance. That is not Christianity. Will God send back his son and find faith in his finished work on the cross and a turning from your lifestyle of sin? Will he find you trusting his grace but then lording your own life? 
No, must, may Christ come and find us, find that we have been so, so taken up by the gospel, so changed on our inner man, our, our inner being by the Holy Spirit, so that we have a new heart that loves what we used to hate and hates what we used to love and now lives a life in a direction and under the lordship of Christ in a way that is different from our pre-Christian selves? Will Christ return and find in you his work of salvation and a life of repentance? And to those who, who now sit or, or stand in a, in a state that is still in enmity with God, that hates his authority, of course, wants his forgiveness, of course, wants his grace, doesn't want to be condemned, I want to go to heaven, that's not the question. The question is, have you, in trust to who God has said that Jesus Christ is, acknowledging that he called himself the Son of God, sent to forgive sinners. Have you named yourself as a sinner? Thrown your sin onto him? Come to the cross in trust that, that Jesus has said, anyone who comes to him, sinful and, and vile and guilty, said anyone that comes and calls on his name will by no means cast out. As the Thessalonian church needed to remember, we need to remember, you do not sit here among Christians if you're unconverted. You're not here among perfected people. Far from it. You are here among sinful people who look to Christ and trust him with all that we have and even that faith feels to fail sometimes that he has forgiven my sin in his cross. That when he rose back to life, he confirmed that I, if I trust him, also have eternal life. Have you trusted that? And if so, then I say to you right now, in, in this moment, your life may not have changed yet. You may have improved yourself not a single bit, but if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, grace is to you. Forgiveness for every sin is yours. Laziness, sexual immorality, rejection of God in all sorts of ways, forgiven in Christ in a moment. And he calls you, he promises you, that he will give you his Holy Spirit to be empowered to live a new life. But that's, that's for tomorrow. Right now, look at Christ on the cross. Trust that his grace is able to save and redeem your life for God's glory. Can you bow your head? And I'm going to pray over us as we complete our time. Father God, as you look upon us, you see some here who know your love, know your grace. They know you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have, they, have, they have assurance that they have come to know you and gained eternal life. God, I pray that to those, those Christians, uh, as we hear the command and the urging and the, and the commendation of your apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church and to us, would you give to us a love of your word? Would you feed us with what we lack? strengthen us so that we can walk in the commandments and examples set down for us, to work hard, mind our business, and to live quietly. Father God, may you also, though, as, as you look down, I know that you see unsaved people, maybe at home and listening, maybe later on listening through the app or here tonight among us, God, you see our hearts. And not one of us can hide our true state before you or any of our sin. You see it all. And I pray, God, that those who sit outside of Christ, maybe they call themselves Christians or they never would dream to, whoever they are, Lord, would you give to them 
Hearts that would trust Christ. Eyes that would see that he really is the glorious son of God sent to be the salvation of the world. Would they, would they have ears that would hear his call to come to salvation? Lord, would you give them feet to run to the cross and be forgiven? May you build us up, Lord, in your most holy grace, that it is not our own work adding to our justification, adding to our acceptance before the Lord, but we trust all the more in Christ's finished work. May you empower obedience in our lives. Lord, we love you. We have so much to thank you for. We thank you for your word given to us for our knowledge and our salvation. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.